From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your taxi, camper, RV, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. I'm Richard Serrett, and this is The Conspiracy Show. Happy Hanukkah, and welcome to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio. AM 740, 96.7 FM here in Toronto. A big hearty how-do to those listening in on one of our affiliates. The uh, podcasts, of course, available at iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, TalkZone.com. And those listening in on the wonderful retro Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, both free and available through Google Play and iTunes. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is standing by. We're going to talk about Christmas miracles and the lives of the saints in just a few moments. I just wanted to mention uh, that I was screening uh, some of our new episodes for Season 4 of the Conspiracy Show uh, TV program coming across uh, Canada on Vision TV. And uh, thanks to Moses Neimer for exec producing. Uh, There's an episode I just saw the other night, uh, now completed, and... um, it's on pterodactyls, and these are the the uh, flying uh, dinosaurs, if you will, thought to be extinct for some 40, 50 million years, some of them with wingspans uh, on the order of 21 feet. And um, there have been sightings of these creatures, alleged sightings, in remote places like Papua New Guinea, where the, uh, the locals there refer to them as ropen, R-O-P-E-N, Ropen. And these uh, flying lizards, as I say, enormous uh, wingspans, and um, they've been seen eating human corpses, digging them up in graveyards. Uh, anyway, that's one of the episodes uh, and that, that's coming at you in Season 4. And then you'll also see episodes on the JFK assassination, uh, the global warming hoax, fluoride, GMOs, and Ouija boards, and in fact, our, uh, our our guest Rosemary is featured in that episode on Ouija boards. Uh, incidentally, seasons one, two, and three of the television program, The Conspiracy Show, now available in the United States on Amazon.com and on Hulu. All right, let's get down to business, shall we? Uh, let's face it, there is a lot of bad news uh, coming your way from this on this program. A lot of Political subterfuge, murder, most foul, conspiracies, the machinations of globalists hell-bent on enslaving humanity, strange and frightening uh, paranormal activity. Uh, But tonight, as we head on into the Christmas season, I thought something more spiritually uplifting might be in order. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a frequent guest on the program. She's a regular. She's uh, with us every month, once a month and usually pressed into service to discuss her more recent paranormal investigations. Uh, But she's also quite the authority on the lives of the saints venerated in the Christian faith. And I thought, well, this is a pretty good time to talk about the saints and some of the miracles associated with them. Rosemary is a leading expert in the metaphysical and paranormal fields with more than 60 books. I think it's closer to 70 now published on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, metaphysical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias and reference works. Her work is translated into 15 languages. Her current work focuses on interdimensional entity contact experiences, problem hauntings, spirit and entity attachments, the afterlife, and spirit communications, psychic skills, dream work for well-being, spiritual growth and development, angels, past and parallel lives, an investigation of unusual paranormal activity. She's worked full-time in the field since 1983, and she's done groundbreaking research on shadow people and the jinn, entities who are involved in different kinds of paranormal activities and problems. She investigates and consults in cases of persistent negative hauntings in which individuals are under apparent attack by supernatural forces. But tonight... We're going to dial it back a few years and talk about one of those major encyclopedic works. It's called the Encyclopedia of Saints. Now, it is available as a beautiful hardcover book, and you can um, you can get that. It's available at her website, 
visionaryliving.com. Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. How are you? Hi, Richard. Well, I'm enjoying the holidays at home. It was a real busy year. I was on the road a lot and uh, finally wound things up last month. Now we're uh, enjoying spending uh, the holidays here at home and relaxing as much as I can relax. <laughs> All right. Well, yes, you deserve it. Time to put up your uh, your feet. Um, and I just, again, I quickly want to mention the um, the Encyclopedia of Saints it's a, nobody publishes in hardcover anymore. So good on you. I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful, uh, book. I happen to have my own copy at home on my, uh, my bookshelf. Uh, I'm, and this book, I think it's going on, uh, uh, for about $80 at Amazon and, and you've got it on your website for about $40. Is that right? I do, yes. I run specials on my encyclopedias, uh, at the end of the year and at the start of the year. And, um, I, uh, I think it's a good thing to do because these books are expensive and uh, I'm able to um, give people a big discount uh, while I have a limited number of copies. Uh, the encyclopedias were all done by the same publisher. Um, well, I have several uh, reference works that were not, but uh, most of my encyclopedias were done by a single publisher that did a beautiful job on them uh, with the covers and the layout, hardcover and paperback. And they have kept them in print. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's for many authors, it's just getting harder and harder to get anything published, let alone published in hardcover. And uh, so it's, uh, it's very nice for a reference work like this. I want to start off with a saint recently beatified, uh, and that is Frere Andre, uh, just down the 401 east of here in good old Montreal. And um, uh, he was, well, when was he beatified? It's just in the last couple of years, isn't it? Um, it was fairly recently. It was 19, uh, well, 1987. Oh, okay, so not too, uh, but, yeah. But uh, uh, that's fairly recent. Um, fewer and fewer saints have been beatified and canonized over the years, although there, uh, there were, uh, like, a lot of canonizations um, in the 1990s especially in third world countries. But uh, I had some personal experiences involving um, Brother Andre, uh, which were quite unexpected. And uh, I really think that he's greatly overlooked. Uh, he probably really ought to be canonized, but the process of canonization is, is very strict these days, and um, he does at least qualify uh, to be um, beatified. Uh, he was a doorman, and uh, he was sickly from birth. Uh, he was born near Montreal. Uh, his father was a carpenter. Uh, they didn't think that he was even going to live past infancy, and he did struggle with ill health most of his life, and he became a remarkable healer. Now, he wanted to uh, dedicate his life to religion, and he was poorly educated, and he, uh, they didn't want him. Uh, the Congregation of the Holy Cross is um, uh, what he wanted to join, and uh, they didn't want him, but he was very persistent, and so they finally let him in as a doorman. And uh, he would go out on his own, on his own time, usually at night, to minister to people who were ill. And many miraculous healings were credited to him that um, he could heal by touch, he could heal by word, uh, in the manner of Jesus, telling people uh, that they were healed and they would be healed. Sometimes he rubbed holy oil on them and that would heal them. And he gained such a reputation. He became uh, known as the wonder worker of Mount uh, Royal. And uh, he became such a sensation that it actually worried his superiors and um, this happens over and over again in the lives of extraordinary saints when they develop um, a cult of popularity. Um, the church becomes very worried that this is going to be an ego thing. They don't want um, cults to develop around uh, personalities, and uh, they've even gone to lengths to squelch that. Uh, and uh, so he was not really encouraged much to do his healing, uh, but he became increasingly popular anyway, and it was through, uh, I think, his, his sheer persistence and the numbers of miraculous healings that were credited to him 
that uh, he achieved something really remarkable in Montreal, which was the building of the Oratory of St. Joseph, his patron saint. He credited everything that he was able to do to St. Joseph. And uh, this oratory is a spectacular building, and uh, people come there from all over the world to pray, and especially for healing, because Frere André is buried there inside the oratory. Right there on Mount Royal, yeah. I mean, this, people. I mean, this is a major uh, tourist attraction. Something like what is it? Two million people uh, flock there every year. Two to three million people every year from all over the world, and uh, he's buried in a black granite tomb. It's called the Black Tomb, and uh, pilgrims come to pray at the tomb and to touch the tomb. Uh, now, the saints are considered intercessors, that they uh, mediate between uh, the living and the divine, and they are believed to uh, to hold special powers uh, of healing and uh, to be able to have prayers uh, realized. You know, they're like angels carry prayers to the divine. And so people pray uh, to Brother Andre for healing. And uh, I had a mystical experience there some years ago. I was in Montreal for a conference, to speak at a conference, and um, one of the other speakers, who is PMH Atwater, uh, one of the leading world experts on near-death experience, uh, asked me if I would like to join her and uh, several other presenters to take a, a side trip to the oratory. And I had never heard of Brother Andre. I was completely unfamiliar with the oratory. And uh, it was my very first trip to Montreal, in fact. And uh, so I went out of curiosity. Uh, she told me a little bit about it. And uh, I'm always up for adventure, and this is right up my alley. So, of course, I wanted to go. And this was on a Sunday morning. Rosemary, so I'm going to get very busy. I'm going to get you to stop right there, and we'll hold on to this. And we'll okay. pick it up on the other side. Rosemary Ellen Guiley's mystical experience at St. Joseph's Oratory on Mount Royal when she went to visit the tomb of Brother Andre. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show as we discuss the mystical lives of the saints. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. Her website, visionaryliving.com. Visionaryliving.com. We're talking about uh, miracles of the saints. And you were in St. Joseph's Oratory on Mount Royal, Montreal, visiting the tomb of uh, Brother Andre, uh, who was beatified back in 1987. And... Um, uh, two million people flock to, to his tomb every year, and his heart is uh, in a uh, in a see-through uh, case. Now, is that in also located in the um, oratory, or is that somewhere else? It is in the oratory. It's not in the same location as uh, as his tomb. And I did see his heart. Um, the relics of the saints are uh, considered to be uh, kind of talismanic in uh, power. Uh, that they also um, have uh, the ability to connect you to the intercessory power of the saint. But nothing rivals the black tomb uh, in the oratory of St. Joseph. And uh, on this particular Sunday morning, I joined a very long line of pilgrims um, waiting to touch the tomb, and I had absolutely no expectations. I was just there to pay my respects. The tomb is uh, is in a rather large room, that the walls are covered with crutches and canes uh, that um, were just dropped and abandoned uh, on the spot by people that he healed. And uh, it's a very powerful place. The energy there is is uh, quite powerful to be in. But I touched the tomb, and as soon as I did, um, I felt this energy pour through me, and it was like... Uh, being swept up into a fiery presence, uh, almost like a rapture, uh, where it was something that just started happening. And I felt that I was in the presence of some intense spiritual energy. And it was very, uh, it was like fire. It was div divine fire. And I felt that it was literally burning away impurities in me. It was... Um, 
an amazing experience, and it lasted as long as I had my hands on the tomb. Uh, I felt that literally I was being pulled up into uh, the presence of God, and uh, it really shook me up. Um, mystical experiences will often bring people to tears, and that's what happened to me. I was uh, so overtaken with this energy that um, when I left uh, the tomb, and I really didn't want to leave, but there were so many people pressing behind me, of course, that I had to, um, after a few minutes, leave. And I went into a chapel, and uh, I was teary and very emotional and quite overtaken with this experience. I felt that I had had an experience of being very, uh, very close to divine fire. And I didn't feel that I had been like completely purified or, uh, as I called it in my, uh, my uh, testimony of it, anointed or appointed in any way. But it was a demonstration to me of the intercessory power of the saints uh, to uh, lift people up to a higher state of consciousness. And uh, that's one of the things that the communion of saints offers to people is um, not only this intercessory power, but uh, they do serve as a model to people. Some of them did lead very strange and very extreme lives, but many of them were dedicated to uh, lifting up humanity, to educating the poor, uh, helping the sick, uh, reforming social order, um, spreading, uh, of course, the, the word of the church, um, uh, spiritualizing uh, people. But um, they, they served as models uh, of um, behavior and uh, spirituality to many people. They still do today. So um, this experience has really stayed with me over the years, and I became quite fascinated by Brother Andre. I wanted to know more about him, so uh, I bought several books uh, about him, read up on him uh, and his life. Uh, he was a very modest man. Most of the saints were very humble. Since that first experience, I have been back to the oratory several times. And, of course, I've wanted that experience again. And this is often the case when people have spontaneous, uh, intense uh, spiritual experiences. They would like a repeat of it. You never do get a repeat of these experiences because it served its purpose. I've had other good experiences and very spiritual experiences there in the oratory, but nothing exactly the same. Was it, was uh, the oratory it that oratory is uh, said to have many power spots in it uh, that are like, um, uh, they're likened to uh, vortexes of spiritual energy that um, can magnify in people if you spend time in certain parts of the oratory uh, praying, for example, uh, you're said to be bathed in these energies. So it's really a remarkable place and um, well worth the visit if you're in the vicinity of it. Um, Brother Andre really persisted in getting this oratory built. This was something he had to really convince his superiors. It was a good idea. Uh, he uh, was instrumental in raising the money for it. And it's a magnificent place to visit. Was that experience what set you on your course to want to write this this encyclopedia, this encyclopedic work on saints? I had already been interested in the saints. Uh, I'm not Catholic. I grew up Methodist. But I've always been interested in the saints and um, this intermediary uh, position they have between uh, the living and, and the divine. And uh, it did... Um, give me a lot of incentive to go into uh, studying the saints more. And uh, it was shortly after this that uh, I began work on the Encyclopedia of Saints. And working on the Encyclopedia was an intense experience for me, too, because uh, for a long period of time I was immersed in the lives of the saints and their trials uh, their martyrdoms, their miracles, uh, their failures, their accomplishments. And um, I felt very changed by that. Uh, I did a second work called uh, The Quotable Saint, which is a, a compilation of 
um, quotations from the saint, the wisdom of the saints on various aspects of life. And uh, that also was an intense experience because I read uh, several hundred um, works by the saints, uh, their letters, their sermons, uh, their uh, books, their treatises uh, on um, their theories uh, about uh, the divine, their uh, their prayer life, their interior life, their experiences, and uh, I, I felt very changed by that too. I haven't taken on very many topics that have personally changed me so much as being involved with the saints. Just back to, to Brother Andre for a moment, and then we'll move on to uh, uh, some other uh, saints, including Januarius, uh, and we're, we're familiar with his story because of the liquefied, uh, um, his, 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 his congealed blood liquefies several times every year. But I wanted to mention Brother Andre's heart again. And are you familiar with the story of how his heart was stolen from the oratory by thieves? This is going back almost 40 years, I think. Oh, I did hear that story, but I have forgotten the details of it, yes. I, I don't have many either, except that it, I know it was stolen, um, and and um, they broke into the, the locked room where the heart was kept, and they, they held it for ransom. They wanted $50,000, and the church refused to pay. Um, but I'm not sure exactly, you know, how they got the heart back or, 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 uh, who, you know, whether they caught the people responsible, but that's just kind of an interesting little, uh, chapter. Um, talk to me about, uh, is it Januarius? Jan- uh, yes, Januarius. Um, I wanted to mention this saint because, um, uh, is the relic, the blood relic of this saint is one of the oddest on record. And uh, St. Januarius was a martyred bishop. Um, very little is known about his life. He lived in the 4th century. And uh, with the saints, uh, especially the older saints, uh, where there are very few records, uh, it's oral stories that have been passed on down. They become part of the hagiographies. There's a lot of legend and sometimes embellishment that gets mixed in with their stories. But uh, nonetheless, um, what we seem to know about Januarius is that he was martyred, he was beheaded uh, during uh, some of the persecutions of Christians in the early centuries. And uh, so his relics were buried um, in a town called Marciano near Naples. And uh, then his body was taken to Naples and was put into a catacomb. And supposedly, uh, two vials of blood were collected uh, from his martyrdom when he was beheaded, and that they uh, became a part of his bones, and there's a, also his skull that's preserved as a relic. And um, as has been common throughout history, and still is today, uh, saint relics are often put on tour, uh, so that the faith they can be venerated by the faithful and and they become um, again these sort of um, catalysts uh, for people to have uh, miraculous experiences and there are healings attributed just to relics of the saints but uh, anyway um, this uh, blood has become um, very strange in behavior and uh, this has gone on for centuries that uh, when uh, feasts have been celebrated honoring Januarius and the relics are brought out for a public a display, um, these vials of blood, uh, which have been dried for centuries, start to liquefy. And uh, they bubble and froth and uh, change color and change um, consistency. And the first such miracle was reported in 1389. So this has been going on for centuries. And uh, these vials now are hermetically sealed, so nobody's able to, uh, you know, the church does not allow anyone to break the hermetic seal to take the blood out to test it. But it it is on public. You can see the the blood change consistency uh, in, in their vials. And uh, so there are these now very elaborate ceremonies where uh, the vials are brought out and uh, people expect to see this miracle of the liquefaction. And um, there are uh, women who are called the ants 
the ants of Januarius, uh, you know, very devout followers of the saint, and they begin shouting and screaming for the liquefaction to take place. So it gets to be a very intense emotional ceremony. And there are three days, from what I understand, uh, that the blood will liquefy. One is the first Sunday in May, which commemorates the translation of the relics to Naples. The second is September 19th, the feast day of the saint. And then December 16th, which is coming up, the commemoration of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 1631. And at that point, um, the blood has liquefied for 30 days, uh, which is an extraordinarily long time. And this happens every year? um, This happens every year without fail? Well, there have been times when the blood has not liquefied, and that is taken uh, as a very bad omen. Uh, for example, there was a case in, um, in uh, May of 1976. Uh, the blood did not change at all, and Naples was hit by an earthquake. And uh, there have been other times when the blood has not liquefied and then something bad has happened, like uh, some um, disaster or uh, an epidemic or um, in centuries past famine, you know, that sort of thing. So um, people expect this to happen. It's, it's considered to be, you know, part of the welfare of the area. Uh, now, Individuals who have attempted to explain this liquefaction, um, there may even be a paranormal component to this because uh, we have this pitched emotion, intense, focused, pitched emotion, and then we have the ants of Januarius who set up this chanting and shouting and screaming uh, for the blood to liquefy, and it has been hypothesized that there might be a psychokinetic effect from the living on this, that the living project this intense energy which causes the blood to change in constitution. And I think there is something to that argument. Uh, there, uh, and I'm not saying there's not a miracle of the blood here. There may very well be a genuine miracle of the blood, but the participation of the living in these intense ceremonies could definitely be a component in the continuation of this miracle. There's also uh, miracles associated with the the marble block upon which he was beheaded, uh, which is, I guess, in the possession of a Capuchin monastery. Tell tell me about what happens with this marble block. Is that that the one? uh, He was beheaded on it. It turns red or something? Uh, I believe so, that um, it's supposed to mimic the blood stains, and uh, this is uh, another characteristic of um, saint relics is, uh, you know, uh, the appearance of um, blood or liquid uh, on things, um, or, you know, some sort of change in constitution or color um, that are associated with also um, usually around feast days or celebrations, anniversaries of death, you know, things like that. And uh, this also is taken as an indication of the holiness of of the individual. All right, Rosemary, we will take a time out when we come back. I want to talk about um, bilocation, and uh, that's been attributed to uh, a number of saints, one in particular, and we'll also talk about St. Dominic, founder of the Order of Preachers, known as the Dominicans. Back with more of our conversation with Rosemary Ellen Guiley as we discuss saints and miracles right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free at one 866 740 Four seven forty. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. Her website visionaryliving.com. Visionaryliving.com. Check out her bookstore page, uh, and there you will find a beautiful hardcover edition of the Encyclopedia of Saints. And uh, this thing goes for about eighty dollars on Amazon, and uh, you can pick it up on her website for a mere forty dollars. Wonderful Christmas present. All right, now I um, I love stories about bilocation. 
And there is one saint uh, who is, um, I guess that is perhaps the most remarkable gift that is attributed to him, and that is Padre Pio. Uh, talk to me about Padre Pio by lo- and by location. Definitely uh, one of the most popular saints of modern times, and he too uh, suffered because of his cult of personality, uh, where he was uh, really kind of squelched by his superiors um, who tried to dampen his popularity. Um, but he's the best known of the bilocators, and he also is famous for his stigmata and, um, you know, the wounds of Christ. And uh, he, had, he had these wounds on his hands and feet that bled all the time. Um, he was a Capuchin, and um, uh, another saint uh, who suffered from poor health most of his life. And I was struck by that over and over again, reading the lives of the saints, uh, how many of them were uh, sickly from a very young age. And that may have been a factor that propelled them toward a spiritual life, because they were literally uh, looking for healing themselves. But uh, Padre Pio was um, um, a very devout man. He probably had, uh, I would say from a paranormal perspective, natural psychic ability that was enhanced uh, by his spiritual practice. And uh, many of the gifts of the saints that determine whether or not they can be beatified and canonized uh, are paranormal gifts, like a mystical knowledge, which uh, would be another way of describing clairvoyance, uh, being able uh, to heal, uh, having the capacity uh, you know, to heal through literally like an energy healing. Um, and uh, quite a few of them were bilocators. Um, Padre Pio began to experience wounds in 1910. Uh, these wounds opened up on his hands. And then in 1918, he had a mystical experience where these stigmata um, occurred. And it was accompanied by a vision in which an angel um, who had this uh, steel blade that spit out fire uh, pierced him, uh, just threw this blade into him, and Padre Pio said for the rest of his life he felt wounded uh, in a very dramatic way, and, and that he was in a kind of a physical and spiritual agony from this. And it was after this that experience that a lot of these other extraordinary abilities opened up. And um, uh, in bilocating, uh, he seemed to be able to do it at will. That in fact, if he told people that uh, if they needed him to call to him in prayer, and there are many cases uh, documented where people would pray, uh, they would find themselves in a crisis situation, and they would pray to Padre Pio for help, and he would appear to them, even though physically he was somewhere else. And uh, this is uh, an ability ascribed to the Eastern mystics as well. Uh, You know, um, we have. uh, remarkable mystics uh, from uh, uh, India, for example, who have that ability of bilocation. And uh, there was a very dramatic case in uh, 1905 where um, he bilocated uh, to a dying man. And um, when he was um, at, at his church, and yet he appeared in his habit, the bedside of this dying man, and um, uh, other people, you know, who have been in, in uh, crisis situations have testified that Padre Pio has physically uh, come to them. And uh, he was finally canonized in 2002, uh, beatified in 1999. I, uh, uh, there's a church in New York City that has uh, one of his relics. It's a bloody sock. Uh, which has uh, blood where the uh, stigmata wound uh, appeared on his foot, and uh, it is on display for veneration. Now, when he bled, um, the blood always had this very sweet scent, and this is another thing that is ascribed to the saints, is this this odor of sanctity. It's usually a, a very heavy floral scent, and uh, if if their bodies are incorrupt, they will often uh, exude this odor of sanctity. And his blood had this uh, sweet scent to it as well. 
Well, he was so popular that uh, the church actually silenced him and forbade him to write letters or preach. This, to me, is absolutely astonishing, because you would think that if you had a figure who uh, could you know, rally the faithful and, and inspire people and draw people to the church, you would think you would want that encouraged. But um, here we get into this personality cult uh, aspect again that has always been um, suppressed. Uh, I think Mother Teresa was an exception to that. She was so popular that uh, there was just no suppressing that popularity cult. But uh, anyway, he was... Uh, you know, almost um, sequestered for his popularity. And uh, people can, he was so popular nonetheless uh, throughout his life that people considered him to be a saint uh, long before the church gave him that uh, official status. There's, a, um, I don't know if we have time here, we're heading into a break, but there's a, an amazing story relating to bilocation and, and Padre Pio uh, during the Second World War. Uh, where a uh, an American fighter pilot, um, well, I guess what happened was he was seen in the air over uh, San Giovanni Rotondo, and this was a town that was under Nazi control, and American bombers were headed there. They were uh, given the task of attacking the city and liberating San Giovanni from the uh, the Nazis, but when they appeared over the city, they were all ready to unload their munitions. And one of the pilots saw a brown-robed friar appearing before their aircraft, and they tried to drop their their payload, and it, and all the uh, the attempts to release the bombs failed. And it's suggested that this is the way that Padre Pio kept his promise to the citizens that their town would be spared. And then later on, American uh, when an American airbase was established at. Uh, uh, Fogia, which is a few miles away, one of the pilots of this incident visited the friary and found, to his surprise, the little friar he had seen in the air that day over San Giovanni was, in fact, uh, Padre Pio. All right, we'll get back to our discussion of the saints with the one and only Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and uh, we'll discuss a very famous Dominican. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. All right, welcome back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. Let's talk about Dominic, founder of the Order of Preachers, or otherwise known as the Dominicans. St. Dominic was uh, a very powerful uh, person, even in his day. He lived in uh, the late 12th to early 13th century, and um, he founded the order, which then uh, became instrumental in um, pursuing Inquisition uh, throughout uh, Europe. Uh, the Dominicans were formed um, uh, most of the uh, body of inquisitors, uh, and um, Dominic uh, has had numerous miracles attributed to him, and one of them raising the dead. Now, there are, are a number of saints who um, have been credited with raising the dead, and uh, most of these uh, raising the dead miracles happened centuries ago, and very little detail is available in terms of exactly how they did it. Was a person really dead? Uh, we must wonder in some cases uh, whether or not uh, the the person was actually dead or perhaps just in a very deep coma or perhaps um, e- even experiencing a near-death experience. But at any rate, um, he's that's one of his big miracles is that uh, he could use um, holy water and prayer to raise the dead. And his most famous case was a cardinal's nephew who was thrown from a horse and very badly mangled and was pronounced dead. And he is said to have brought that, uh, that man back to life. He could also multiply food. Many of the saints imitated Jesus and some of the things they could do. Uh, he multiplied food like Jesus did, uh, and he did it through prayer. And um, he also had what's called the, the gift of miraculous transport. And that's not quite the same as bilocation. It's uh, the ability to suddenly be in a distant location 
uh, we would call it teleportation uh, in paranormal terms. And uh, these are abilities that here again are ascribed to the Eastern yogis and adepts. So uh, highly spiritualized people um, in a variety of religions all demonstrate the same extraordinary capabilities. And uh, one of the things I think we, sh- we should keep in mind about the saints is that uh, it's, these things are not limited to just mi- um, minority of extraordinary people. They are available to all human beings. Uh, if we spiritualize our consciousness, um, we can uh, achieve the same uh, level of extraordinary uh, feats. We can um, have miraculous powers and uh, we can do extraordinary things. The, the saints were very focused. They led intense spiritual lives. We don't have to withdraw into monasteries and and be as extreme, perhaps, but we can spiritualize our consciousness to uh, perhaps experience some of those things. Um, and so the saints do serve in, in that sort of inspiration. Uh, uh, one of the things that's fascinating... Dominic died in Bologna... Uh, Italy, and I did go to his church there uh, and his um, his tomb, and that church is so full of relics. It is stuffed to the brim with relics of, of uh, saint body parts and bones and uh, incorrupt bodies, uh, and uh, I took a tour of the church and then uh, interviewed the, uh, the priest who led the church, and he said, you want to see relics? I'll show you relics. And he takes me into the attics uh, in the, in, uh, of this huge church where they've got so many relics, they don't even have space to put them out. Oh, my gosh. It was absolutely flabbergasting. What did um, you see up there? <laughs> the head of John the Baptist? Well, what did you find? <laughs> but um, I, I took a trip to Italy some years ago, and it was kind of a pilgrimage for me. Um, I was able to visit many different cities, uh, mostly in central and northern Italy, and I wanted to see the famous places of the saints. I wanted to see their relics, uh, their incorrupt bodies, uh, and to be in, in the places uh, where they carried on their, their lives and their work. And um, um, also in Bologna, I, I saw the incorrupt body of uh, Catherine of Bologna, and uh, her... Uh, her incorrupt body is uh, sitting in a reliquary, um, and she's dressed in her habit with uh, an open Bible on her lap and a rosary, and she looks like she's in prayer. She's entirely black now. Her skin has been blackened by uh, candle smoke over the centuries, but she looks so lifelike. Um, and this is in a tiny little chapel that you have to know where it is. It's not advertised, and it took me a great deal of effort to find this place. And um, there's a tiny little room where about six people are allowed in at a time to sit and pray and contemplate. And uh, she's incredibly lifelike. And, and when did she when did she die? Body of Catherine of Genoa as well, um, and uh, the preserved tongue of Anthony of Padua, uh, and. Um, the uh, wrist bone of Therese of Lisieux that was in France. Um, just an amazing pilgrimage. The, in- the incorrupt, uh, incorrupted uh, body of the saint that you just mentioned, when, when did she pass away? How, uh, how long ago? Um, which Catherine? Um, the, Catherine one you, of... the one you said her body has been blackened by a candle oh, smoke. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh. Uh, let me think here. She was lived in the 1400s. Um, so we're talking 600 years yeah, ago. About, yeah, about 600 years ago. Uh, 1463 died in 1463, and uh, canonized in 1712. The process is a little shorter today. In earlier times, it often took quite a while for uh, the church to do a thorough uh, study of the sanctity of someone's life and their acts and uh, whether or not miracles could be uh, proved to them, um, especially posthumously. The miracle has to be demonstrated posthumously for them to be 
uh, canonized. So you know, it took her several uh, hundred years to be canonized. But uh, yes, for hundreds of years, um, her body has uh, been remarkably preserved. And um, now Catherine of Genoa, she lived at about the same time. She died a little bit later in the early 1500s. Uh, and her body is um, it is rather desiccated. It's it's um, very dried out uh, compared to Catherine of of uh, Bologna. I had never seen anything like that. It was astonishing. But uh, even so, uh, even the other uh, incorrupt saints that um, have had remarkably little um, deterioration of the body, it's still incredible, and it is considered to be. Uh, a sign of of their sanctity. Um, some of these saints, if if a saint was uh, led an exemplary life and was uh, uh, remarkable during their lifetime, sometimes their body would be exhumed uh, after they were buried to uh, see um, if if there were signs of, of incorruption and. Um, there, um, some saints were literally dismembered uh, for their relics, and the relics were shipped around all over the world uh, for veneration by the faithful. Francis of Xavier was uh, practically dismembered that way in uh, various bones, and in a way, it's kind of of a macabre practice. I'll say, <laughs> but um, uh, millions of people will turn out. Uh, to see the relics of, of a saint. When uh, the wrist bone of Therese of Lisieux came to America s- some years ago, uh, I mean, throngs of people turned out to see uh, see the relic. What about uh, Joseph of Copertino? This is uh, a saint best known for his uh, levitation. Yes, and he is uh, probably unique in the annals of levitation. Uh, here again, there are other saints who are ascribed this ability to float, rise up into the air and float. But if the stories about him are true, um, there's been nothing like him before or since in this ability. And, uh, of course, we've, we've had transcendental meditation. People talk about being able to levitate and even film showing that, and it's just kind of a, a short lifting up. Uh, through intense meditation, um, and then they come back down. But according to reports, Joseph of, Joseph of Copertino could stay in the air for hours. Now, he lived in the 17th century, and he was a Franciscan. Uh, and uh, the story to him uh, has some uh, Jesus-like uh, characteristics to it. His father was a carpenter um, and died before he was born. His mother was so poor that... Um, she lost her home. She had to give birth to him in a stable. He was uh, poor. He was ridiculed when he was a kid. And he was very unusual when he was young because he seemed to lapse into trance states a lot. And this seemed to be very instrumental in his uh, later levitation. So uh, after he uh, took his orders, um, his religious life was comprised of a lot of mystical experiences and intense visions. It was like he was in an altered state almost all the time. And he would get swept up into these ecstatic uh, states of consciousness where he would levitate. And um, testimonies about him uh, rising up into the air and even flying around, uh, and that he could remain in the air a long time. This wasn't just an up and down that he could hover in the air. Uh, he could do it outside as well as inside. And um, he even gave a demonstration to this uh, to the Pope, who was Urban VIII. And uh, when he visited the Pope, um, he rose spontaneously into the air after kissing the Pope's feet. Well, uh, this alarmed a lot of his superiors. Here again, this refrain of extraordinary abilities uh, alarming the superiors, and what are we going to do about it? He was so disruptive to his fellow monks that he was confined. Uh, they just couldn't take it, I guess, him flying around. Uh, and uh, he was confined to a room for, for uh, uh, quite some time. Um, he also exuded this odor of sanctity. Um, 
Now, how do we explain someone like Joseph of Copertino? Did he really levitate? Because we can't find other examples uh, of extraordinary spiritual figures in history who had this ability to do it with the frequency and the uh, the length of time that he was capable of doing. So uh, we can't just write all of these testimonies off as, as fabrication, but how do we document and validate it? There's, there's uh, really uh, no one's come up with, with anything um, that could explain conclusively how he was able to do this and, in fact, that he did do this. We have nobody in modern times being able to duplicate this. Well... Uh, well, maybe they're out there, and uh, again, it's um, it's perceived as some sort of a threat because of the cult of personality to the church, and maybe we won't learn about them uh, until again after they've uh, after they've passed. Rosemary, always fascinating, and again, people can find out all about the saints in your encyclopedia available at visionaryliving.com. Thank you so much for this, and Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you too, Richard. All right, my thanks to uh, Ian Robertson and uh, Albert Finzel back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I say in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.